BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today on The Argument, what happens if the pro-life movement wins? Sometime this year, the Supreme Court could take up a case that might be the final blow to Roe versus Wade. For 48 years, Roe has protected the right to an abortion in America. Former President Donald Trump vowed to overturn Roe, and every justice he appointed the Supreme Court was vetted to do just that. Neil Gorsuch was put on the court to do this. Brett Kavanaugh was put on the court to do this. Amy Coney Barrett was put on the court to do this. Overturning Roe would leave abortion regulation up to the states. It would be a huge win for the pro-life movement. But some pro-lifers are saying it doesn't go far enough. I'm Jane Koston, and today I'm welcoming back my colleagues Ross Douthat and Michelle Goldberg to debate what a post-Roe world would look like. Earlier this month, Ross criticized the pro-life movement's tactics in a column. He argued that for the pro-life movement to truly succeed, it needs to expand social services that would make an abortion-free America possible. Problem is, those same social services are anathema to the Republican Party the movement has tied itself to. Michelle called that a fallacy in a responding column. In her view, the pro-life movement has no interest in making the world a better place for struggling parents or in changing public opinion. Its interest, Michelle says, is purely to control pregnant bodies. They've agreed to come on the show and hash it out in person. Hi, Ross. Hey, Jane. How are you? I'm good. It is lovely to have you back. How's it going? You know, my life without weekly appearances on The Argument has been a desolate wasteland with carrion birds circling overhead. So mm-hmm. so it's pretty good to be here. It's like when Jesus descended to hell. It's like that. Well, let's not. I mean, let's not. <laughs> let's not get crazy. I'll take the carrion birds over hell. <laughs> Michelle, it is wonderful to have you back. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So we're here because you wrote dueling columns. And since dueling is illegal, I thought that The Argument would be the second best option. <laughs> Michelle, your piece was in direct response to Ross's Sunday Review column. So let's get right into it and bring the duel to life, so to speak. So, Ross, can you walk us through your article? We're going to link it in the show notes, but it's entitled, What Has the Pro-Life Movement Won? So this column was prompted in part by this somewhat obscure but pretty interesting argument that broke out among pro-life philosophers and legal thinkers over the past few weeks, which was prompted by an essay in the religious journal First Things by a philosopher named John Finnis. And Finnis argued that the 14th Amendment, which, among other things, says that no state may deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law, that that person should apply to unborn human beings, and therefore abortion is actually already unconstitutional. And this argument has been floating around in pro-life circles for a while. Finnis is probably the most prominent person to make the case. And it's totally different from the argument that 99% of conservative legal scholars have made about abortion and Roe versus Wade for the last 50 years. 
So, Michelle, you read Ross's column. What was your response to this argument and to Ross's interpretation? What interested me about it is that, you know, first of all, I've always believed that this argument that all the anti-abortion movement really wants to do is send abortion back to the states. I've always believed that that is fundamentally dishonest. Right. Because I think that if you are opposed to abortion, you do not want New York to have a liberal interpretation of abortion law or for California to have a liberal interpretation of abortion law. You want there to be no abortion. And, it, you know, the idea that the anti-abortion movement just wants to return to a sort of pre-Roe status quo has never made sense because before Roe versus Wade, there was a crime of abortion. So once you've reconceived abortion as murder, it's very hard to say, and it should be a local matter. And even just as a matter of political strategy, the Republican Party's platform since before Ronald Reagan has called for a constitutional amendment banning abortion. So it's just ridiculous to me to suggest that the anti-abortion movement would be content with just rolling back Roe. But what's striking to me is that this is coming out now in part because I think the end of Roe is in sight, even though it's not guaranteed. And this is, you know, something Ross and I can talk about because one way of reading this controversy is that it's about a movement that's on the cusp of a long sought for victory and is looking even farther afield. Another way of reading it is that it's a movement that has sort of fought for years and years to get to this moment and still fears that it's not going to get what it wants because it fears that even a six to three Supreme Court will kind of hollow row out, but won't ultimately jettison it because of the degree of public backlash that would create. Ross, this is something that you brought up a little bit in your piece. Do you think that the originalism is a ruse? Do you think that the let's send it back to the states was a bad faith argument by anti-abortion activists? So there's a lot there. Let's start with Michelle's question of what kind of position is the pro-life movement actually in, which I think is the really interesting and hard to answer question, right? Because I think both the pro-life movement simultaneously feels on the cusp of victory and feels like it's about to have the rug pulled out from under itself once again. So both of those feelings are present at the same time, where you have this six to three Supreme Court vetted by the Federalist Society and the pro-life movement has sacrificed a great deal up to and including various principles and its support of Donald Trump to get to this outcome. And yet there's absolutely no way of knowing right now how far this court is willing to go overturning Roe. And there are at least signals, particularly in a case from Mississippi, that the court has very conspicuously sort of punted on for a little while that there might not even be four justices right now who are enthusiastic about ruling on something like a 15 or 20 week abortion ban. Can I just say something quickly about the Mississippi case? Because this is kind of a black box, because if you talk to people in the pro-choice movement, basically this case is just kind of sitting with the Supreme Court as they decide whether to take it up or not. And it's been and it's, sitting, right, I think, longer, longer than, than usual. usual. Yes. And there's I think on both sides, everybody's trying to decide what this means. Right. So we will know more, presumably, in six months. But for right now, Let's just say it wouldn't be incredibly surprising if some group of Republican appointees on the Supreme Court ended up maybe taking one more small step to limit Roe's sweep without going anywhere near as far as actually 
overturning it or doing what pro-lifers want. So to the extent that that fear hangs over the pro-life movement, it's not bad faith at all. And the 14th Amendment idea is seen as sort of this alternative path where, you know, why not just have the Supreme Court do what conservatives feel like liberal Supreme Court rulings do all the time? and just sort of settle the culture war battle. Like Obergefell did not declare that states had the right to permit same-sex marriage. It established same-sex marriage as the law of the land. Why not do the same thing for the right to life? That's sort of the idea hanging over these arguments, but it's an idea born as much out of the fear of failure or the sense of failure as a feeling of being on the cusp of success. I want to back up a little bit because something that's important here is that the 14th Amendment argument also recognizes that polling is not really on the side of the people who want to eliminate abortion altogether. And it's not necessarily on the side of people who want abortion availability to be widened more so. And I think this is a challenging issue because what we're seeing from the common good conservatives and the conservative legal scholars who are making this argument is basically screw public opinion We should just have the court do what we want it to do because we think it's the right thing to do. And that sending it to the states would allow people to still get abortions. The actual sort of common good theory is that actually public opinion is extremely malleable and sort of follows elite moves as much as it does shape them. So if you get in an argument with one of the common good constitutionalists, they'll say the way you reshape public opinion is to have elite institutions make certain statements and rulings that then establish baselines that shape public opinion in their turn. That's the theory. And I think that theory is at best extremely incomplete. But it's, I don't think it's entirely wrong. I think there's a dynamic interplay between what courts do and what public opinion is that you can see on issues like same-sex marriage, that public opinion shifts happen, court rulings happen, that shift public opinion further in certain ways. Wait, although There's a lot of complexity there. Because Finnis acknowledges that if the Supreme Court did this, it would meet, in his words, unimaginable resistance. He just doesn't think that that's germane. Right. And it's also just true that this has not worked anywhere in the world. There's nowhere in the world where abortion bans have been followed by widespread acquiescence among women. Instead, you see huge numbers of people in the streets in Poland, referendum overturning the abortion ban in Ireland, huge amounts of agitation in Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa, and just women pushing back. There's never been a case where women writ large have just kind of acquiesced to this new set of social norms that has been imposed upon them. Something that you go into in your piece, Ross, and I I want to quote from your piece. To restrict abortion in a just and sustainable way, to reduce both the personal hardship of parenting and the incidence of illegal abortion, you probably need some kind of policies like Romney's plan, no matter what the consequences for work incentives or single motherhood. Because I think that this gets at both the way in which this would be workable and I want to ask you, is this also a means by which you would solve the public opinion problem? Yes, it's both. The argument in the piece is that in the context of early 21st century America, especially where you don't have stable family structures, large numbers of children being born out of wedlock, period, with legal abortion, in that context, basically to have an abortion ban is over the short term to guarantee more children born out of wedlock, more children born to mothers in poverty, all of these kind of things. And so 
there's both an argument from justice and an argument from public opinion that says that in that context, you could only make that kind of regulation or ban workable if the pro-life side was willing to support substantial increases in support to mothers and families. The Romney plan is one version of what that looks like, but it's also about like hospitals and prenatal care and a whole host of other things that the U.S. government and state governments already do. But I think it's fair to say that it's not the area of public spending that the pro-life political party, the pro-life political coalition tends to be most enthusiastic about. But all that makes it sound like I'm arguing this as something that's more realistic than I think it necessarily is. Michelle, you had a pretty sharp critique for this because the pro-family policies that would be suggested by Ross are not the policies that would be suggested by the Republican Party, which we exist with. Right. And there's nothing to stop pro-lifers from instituting policies like this now. I mean, obviously, in my opinion, the one thing you can do to really curtail abortion is increase access to birth control. But even if you're not willing to go down that road, there are other things that you can do now with Roe versus Wade still being, however weakened the law of the land, there are things you can do to make it easier for somebody with an unplanned pregnancy to bring it to term. But aside from Ross and, you know, sort of a few other quirky figures, that's not a priority. And I think that there's a fundamental question to me. Well, it's not even a question because I know what I think about it um, of, you know, is the anti-abortion movement interested in stopping abortions or banning abortions? Or is it interested in reducing the number of abortions or making abortions illegal? Because those two things are different questions. One is about the actual number of abortions in society. The other is about a society's values and hierarchy and structure. Something that I've seen reporting on this issue in Latin American countries where abortion is either illegal or severely restricted is that it's pretty easy to find out where to get an illegal abortion. Like it's the kind of thing that I could roll up and figure out in a week or two. So presumably the police could figure it out too. You see women getting jailed for dubious miscarriages. You don't see a lot of, at least I didn't see when I was reporting on this at the time, raids on the places where people were actually getting abortions. And you certainly didn't see a reduction in abortion rates. You know, Latin America has some of the highest abortion rates in the world. And so it seemed to me that what was important to conservatives in those societies was not that there be less abortions, but that there be more moral condemnation of abortion, that there be kind of a society-wide statement against female bodily autonomy. And I suspect that the same is true here. I suspect that for a lot of members of the anti-abortion movement, given a choice between a regime in which abortion is criminalized but still prevalent and a regime in which abortion is legal but less prevalent, they would take the one where it's criminalized. So I completely disagree. A few points. One, I think the relevant case studies for the effect of abortion laws on abortion rates for a country like the U.S. are, in fact, the several states of the American Union and maybe arguably countries in Western and Central Europe that are somewhat our peers in terms of development, women's educational opportunities, healthcare, and so on. And if you look across those states and societies, there's a imperfect but pretty clear correlation between higher abortion rates and laxer abortion laws and lower abortion rates and more restrictive abortion laws. The states in the U.S. that have 
to the extent that's possible under Roe, tighter abortion laws and regulations that mean that there are fewer abortion clinics in the states have lower abortion rates. In Europe, the highest abortion rates are in countries that have liberal abortion laws, places like more Catholic regions, but also places in Germany that have either second trimester restrictions, waiting periods, counseling, various impediments, have lower abortion rates. So the idea that if you have anti-abortion laws, it doesn't affect abortion rates is, I think, fundamentally wrong. I don't think there is a tension between saying, do you care about the abortion rate or do you care about the abortion law? Abortion law has a profound impact on abortion rates, and it also just has an impact. And I guess here I agree with some of the sort of common good conservatives. The law is a kind of moral teacher. It establishes a kind of public perception of what's right and wrong. And that, too, I think, affects the choices that people are willing to make. Now, I completely agree with Michelle, and as she kindly acknowledged, I'm part of the small faction of conservatives that thinks that government spending and government policy around families is a really important area of public policy where conservatives have, with some exceptions, failed in their goals. At the same time, the actual pro-life movement, which is not the same thing as the Republican Party, right? It's a sort of group within the Republican Party that doesn't have actual control over the Republican Party in all kinds of ways. The actual pro-life movement has spent large amounts of time and energy through all kinds of charitable organizations and Catholic religious orders and crisis pregnancy centers and so on, trying to actually help mothers who want to have babies. I think this is insufficient as public policy, that private charity is not enough. But the idea that like the pro-life movement mostly consists of people sitting around saying we really need to restore status hierarchies and keep women in their place. I don't think they're saying that. I think it's implicit. It just doesn't map onto actual pro-life activism. Like the people who are activists, the people who actually work on this issue are doing the things that under Michelle's theory of what's going on, they shouldn't They're be They're not doing. doing it that much. I want to get in here because you said something that was important, Ross, which is that the pro-life movement and the Republican Party are not the same thing. But we all know that the Republican Party has used abortion as a carrot to get votes for 40-something years. And yet they have seen, and we have heard time and time and time again, that if you get the right judges, if you get the right people into state office, that we will eventually get to this goal here. But the challenge is, what has that done, do you think, to the pro-life movement? If we are thinking about the pro-life movement and the Republican Party as being these two very different things, well, they have been intertwined for political purposes and for the purpose of, in many cases, overturning Roe versus Wade, overturning abortion laws in the states. And now I think for many people who are outside of these movements, they see them as being basically the same thing. So I think I, I disagree a little bit. I think that, look, the anti-abortion movement, I think, has gotten plenty out of this bargain by hitching itself to the political party that kind of structurally wields disproportionate power in this country. I think in a lot of ways that was a good deal. And it's why you have these six judges on the Supreme Court. It's why you have, you know, kind of national anti-abortion legislation. To me, the question is whether the Republican Party really wants to kind of catch the tiger by the tail. The Republican Party has also gotten a lot out of this alliance. And it's not clear to me how much it actually wants to succeed. I think there are certainly individuals within the Republican Party that are genuinely in it to ban abortion. 
I think there are others that are terrified of what the backlash would look like if the Supreme Court actually did go ahead and ban Roe versus Wade. There's support for abortion restrictions in this country, but there is very strong support for keeping Roe versus Wade. It's been around for so long and there's been so many warnings that it's in danger and it's never actually been overturned that I think a lot of people have a hard time imagining that it could be overturned. But if it really was overturned, it would send such unbelievable shockwaves through this country. And it is not at all clear to me that the Republican Party of Matt Gates and Donald Trump and Scott Desjardins, my favorite example of a Republican congressman, you know, the pro-life Republican congressman who pressured his mistress into having an abortion and also drew a gun on his wife and is just still there. Still um, there. You know, yep. it is not clear to me that like these are men who are really going to be happy either with a regime in which abortion is illegal or with the political consequences of such a regime. The small point is that to the extent that that's true, so much the worse for Matt Gates and men like him. But the larger point is that, I, yeah, I agree with Michelle broadly. The way to see the Republican Party is to say there's a pro-life movement within the Republican Party that used to, you know, have sort of influence over both parties and under conditions of polarization has become more influential in the Republican Party and obviously not influential at all in the Democratic coalition. And then you have a lot of people who don't care about abortion, just don't like liberalism. You know, the defining glue of the Republican coalition more so than ever is just people who have something they don't like about liberalism. And that includes absolutely a lot of men who were happy with certain aspects of the sexual revolution and don't want to be lectured about norms of consent by, you know. Right. This is the Rush Limbaugh wing of the Republican Party, which is pretty significant. It's more like Rush Limbaugh is, in addition to being dead, it's sort of a, a figure from another time. It's more like this columnist named Matthew Walther called it the Barstool Sports Wing of the Republican Party, okay. which I think is the more a much more up-to-date formulation. But yeah, absolutely. Those are all reasons why Republicans would not wish the overturning of Roe. And were Roe overturned, the pro-life movement would lose a lot of battles in state houses very quickly. And this also gets, I think, to the weird feeling pro-life movement can look right now and see that the Georgia voting rights law example is a good example, right? Corporate America has become a very engaged political force on the side of certain forms of social liberalism. And you would imagine that states that past substantial abortion bans would face boycotts and all kinds of corporate pressure in a way that they wouldn't have 30 or 40 years ago if Roe had been overturned in the 1990s. Generally, the landscape is not exactly favorable <laughs> to the pro-life cause with or without Roe, with the exception being that polling on abortion has not moved substantially left. It's incredibly stable and there's deep ambiguity. Most Americans have really ambiguous feelings about abortion. So it is an issue where there is lots of room to make arguments. Right. Even if, you know, those arguments don't necessarily prevail. Right. But they haven't moved substantially towards the right either. Most people feel ambiguously, which is not necessarily right nor left. Right. The key thing here is they've moved to public opinion on so-called social issues, whether it's same-sex marriage, marijuana legalization, assisted suicide, even like polyamory, <laughs> have moved substantially left 
over the last 20 years. We'll have to do our special polyamory episode of the argument eventually. But abortion is the exception. So its stability is notable given the leftward shift on all of these other issues. Hi, my name is Shalom. I'm calling from Boston. I've been arguing about abortion with my friends and family members. It's something that I've noticed has really turned a lot of the people around me into single-issue voters and something that politics in this country really hinges on today. Personally, I find the pro-life movement to be myopic and restrictive, but at the same time, I'm uncomfortable with calling myself 100% pro-choice because I don't exactly know where I come down on the issue in certain circumstances. What are you arguing about? With your family? Your friends? Your frenemies? Tell me about the big debate you're having in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. And we might play an excerpt of it on a future episode. This podcast is supported by Mercy Corps. From war in Ukraine, to flooding in Pakistan, to earthquakes in Afghanistan. Mercy Corps is delivering urgent humanitarian assistance and long-term solutions to families in crisis around the globe. Visit mercycorps.org donate to learn more and support lasting solutions in over 40 countries. That's mercycorps.org donate to help build a future where everyone can flourish. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love spelling bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. So I think that one reason that public opinion remains fairly stable is because, you know, even though abortion access has been chipped away and chipped away, it's happened in a way that doesn't really catch people's attention or imagination. I mean, one of the most brilliant innovations, in my opinion, of the anti-abortion movement was to make so much of it about so-called trap laws, these targeted regulations at abortion providers So you have these kind of very high stakes debates about things like how wide the hallways in abortion clinics have to be. And they have real world implications for whether or not abortion clinics are able to operate. But they are like eye glazingly dull. They just are not going to arouse any sort of passions. I think that opinion on this would shift very quickly if people had to live with the consequences of a national anti-abortion ban, or even if people had to live with the consequences of sort of a personhood amendment. I want to say one more thing about the 14th Amendment, even though it's like a little bit orthogonal to what we're talking about. One reason why the legal argument that the 14th Amendment applies to zygotes and embryos and fetuses is so wild to me is that the first line of the 14th Amendment is literally all persons born or naturalized in the United States, you know, which is pretty clear. But I have actually never understood why the pro-choice movement doesn't make a 4th or 14th Amendment 
argument about abortion because something that the 14th Amendment says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. It's never been clear to me why there isn't a due process problem with forced pregnancy. I've been thinking about what would happen if the government, for example, said that everybody who has been infected, you know, with one of these particularly virulent strains of COVID had to donate blood plasma. I think people would would freak out. It would be considered a tyrannical imposition on their personal kind of liberty and, and sovereignty. To me, it's like an obviously kind of analogous case. Does the government have the right to sort of appropriate your personal property, your personal self, because it might be life-saving to someone else? The issue is that you can't remove a fetus from a woman's body without killing it. People see, I think reasonably, a moral distinction between inaction, your failure to donate plasma, let somebody die. That is morally distinct from taking a vacuum pump or using a poison and killing somebody in external, in cases external to a woman's body, right? Like you're not tried for murder for failing to donate blood plasma. I would be tried for murder if I poisoned someone and they died. So that distinction applied to life in utero means that there's a distinction between like forcing women to take extreme measures to prevent miscarriage. That's different from getting an abortion. Miscarriage is different from an abortion. But most of this comes back to the question of whether pregnancy is forced. The argument for forced pregnancy, to my mind, is most powerful in cases of rape and incest, which is why those are cases where you actually have, you know, even some pro-lifers saying, well, that's the, you know, that has to be the one exception where abortion is legal. But is that because they think of that differently or because the opinion polling is so bad on that particular issue? I will speak for myself. I'm not going to tell you why people think what they think. I think that to the extent that there is an argument that you cannot force someone to be pregnant, it applies plausibly to cases of rape and incest and not to 99% of pregnancies, which are not actually forced because people have sex and that's how they get pregnant. There's this famous argument by the philosopher Judith Jarvis Thompson, who says that the pregnant woman is in the position of someone who wakes up attached to a concert violinist Mm -hmm. who will die if they are disconnected from the woman's body. I've never understood why it has to be a concert violinist, but sorry. I, I I don't either. So let's say a woman, you wake up and you're attached to a child who will die if you do not consent to be connected to them via tubes and so on for nine months are you required to be connected to them for nine months? I've always thought that the Thompson argument is a case for, to the extent that you accept it, it's a case for allowing abortions in cases of rape, which doesn't mean that you should allow abortion cases of rape, but that's where the logic of that argument goes. It doesn't go to cases where people have sex, which is the act that creates a human being, And then they get pregnant. The person who wakes up attached to a concert violinist has not done the act that creates new human beings. Right. And I would argue that even if you had a wild night, you got drunk, you blacked out, you wake up, you're attached to the concert violinist, you still don't have a requirement to maintain that attachment for nine months. And it is pretty clear to me. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to make this argument that like 
you know, if men could have abortions, abortions would be a sacrament. But I actually do not think that men would consent to that kind of limitation on their bodily autonomy. But that's not that, a it's bad, not that I don't think it. So it's it's not whole, that I don't think it. It's that I know men, it. Because, then, right? because you see how people respond to say like, you know, and this is where I do think things like mask mandates are relevant, right? You do see how people respond when they are asked to sort of small curtailments on their bodily autonomy for the sake of other people's lives. You know, it is typically not a generous response. Part of the reason I make this point is because I actually think the pro-choice movement is on its weakest grounds with these arguments about is a fetus human being. I mean, I, I think there's something really problematic sort of practically about treating an embryo as a full person under the law. But, you know, right, anybody who's been pregnant understands that there's something human about a fetus. They understand that it has like a different moral status than assist. My argument is that it doesn't really matter because the question is not as Finnis argues, is this a person? It's, is this a person that has a right to live in another person against their will? The pro-choice argument that if men could get abortions, a patriarchal society would allow abortions, that's totally plausible, but so much the worse for the patriarchal society. And the strongest thing about the pro-choice argument is its critique of like, how all of the norms of human society can disadvantage women and mothers in all of these kinds of ways. That's a powerful argument. But if the end point of that argument is we should be able to do what men would do, I don't understand why you want to end in that point. Although I made this analogy to the violinist, I don't actually think that most abortions are a result of people having sort of wild, heedless, irresponsible nights and then waking up the next day and deciding they don't want to live with the consequences of their hedonism. And I and I agree. I agree with that. Right. I mean, and, and we know it. We know that most people have abortions or mothers. So they have, you know, a very good idea of what parenthood entails. They have profound financial and emotional stresses on them, right? And that is, again, I think the critique of the Republican Party, that it doesn't want to do enough to support women with those financial and emotional stresses, is incredibly powerful. And I generally agree with it. Michelle Goldberg and Ross Dathod are columnists in the New York Times opinion section. I want to thank you both for having this conversation. I have attempted to largely avoid debates over abortion for basically my entire life. And I've never taken part in one that was this combative but compassionate. So I'm grateful to both of you for your thoughtfulness and your expertise. Oh, thank you, Jane. And thanks, Ross. Thank you, Jane, for hosting us. Thank you, Michelle. If you want to learn more about the status of abortion in America right now, I recommend you read an article in The Atlantic by Emma Green entitled The Anti-Abortion Rights Movement Prepares to Build a Post-Roe World and the book Defenders of the Unborn, a fascinating history of the anti-abortion movement that might surprise you by historian Daniel K. Williams. You can find links to all of these and the articles mentioned in our discussion in our episode notes. Finally, I'll let you in on a secret. I have been dreading doing an episode on abortion. For a topic that seems omnipresent, abortion remains the elephant in our political and cultural room. We think we talk about it all the time, but we're actually talking about restrictions or polling questions or clinic privileges while avoiding the subject of abortion itself. 
And polling shows that most Americans aren't exclusively pro-choice or exclusively anti-abortion, but somewhere in the muddled middle. So for this episode, I appreciate both Ross and Michelle for taking the time to talk with me and with one another about one of the most polarizing topics in American life. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Alison Brujic and Paul Schumann. With original music and sound design by Isaac Jones. And fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks this week to Shannon Busta. Jane has promised us that the next time we're on together, we will argue about something other than abortion, though. So, uh, well, you have to so talk we'll about look, polyamory. We'll look. That's right. Yeah, polyamory. I'm not, I'm no, not that's, your girl for that's, that. That's that's an easy. Oh, <laughs> that, that's what that's what people always say, Michelle. <laughs> Sorry. This is a hostile work environment. <laughs> this is, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners and more all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.